If you have your Bible, turn in those to the Gospel of John. Today we're finishing out essentially chapter 11. But turning our attention to the Gospel of John today, uh, in, in a sense the Pharisees cross a threshold. They, they say, in a sense, I do to the idea of killing Jesus. But really what I see is, you see, you, you have kind of three different groups of people in our passage that respond differently to the work of God and Lazarus raising from the dead earlier in John chapter 11. So today, we will begin with our context in verse 43. We will pick up at the tail end of the story of Lazarus rising from the dead, and we will read to verse 54. Verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what, had done, what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. What's the irony there? Verse 51, Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into the city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Amen. Uh, before we open, let us go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the redemption that you have given to us, that cost you greatly, but you have given to us free of charge. And Lord, I just pray for this morning that um, if we do not know you as Savior, as Lord of our life, Lord, that you would come and we would encounter you, and that we would believe in you through the power of your Spirit, Lord, this morning I believe that there are people in amongst us, in this room, that do not know you as the Savior, the Son of God, and Lord and Master of their life. I pray that they would surrender to you today in faith. And Lord, I pray for those that are here that are believers. Lord, I pray that we would see the example of the crowds, we would see the example of the Pharisees and Caiaphas, and Lord, that we would avoid some of it. And Lord, that we would put into action others. Lord, just be, bless your... Beautiful today. Thank you for this church. We trust you. Lord, I pray that your word would speak loudly into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thank you, PJ. Thank you to all those that turn and make this place go round. Thank you to the staff and to those who volunteer on Wednesday nights in Awana and all around the church throughout the week. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you all. Today I uh, titled my sermon, Awakening to Last Chances. Awakening to Last Chances. And yes, I chose a title that makes no sense because there's only one last chance. But here lies the tension of the passage. 
And over the last year or so, we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of John, and this Gospel answers one central question. It, a- it answers the question, who is Jesus? And if you've been here for any length of time, I pointed out this verse, John chapter 20, verse 31. If you do not have that verse highlighted and bolded and uh, marked in your Bible, do so, because that reveals the purpose of the stories of the Gospel of John. But within that verse itself, we see uh, that Jesus is the Christ, number one, Jesus is Christ, meaning that He is the Messiah. That word Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it is a designation that Jesus is the Messiah, or the Hebrew word Meshua, meaning the Anointed One. That he is the Christ. Number two, he is the Son of God. But if you've been here for any length of time, then you know he is even more than that. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 19. He is Yahweh, Ego Amy. He is I Am. Seen in the seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John, he is the pre existent one. He is fully God. What does it say in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the beginning was. Past tense was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That He is the Son of Man, seen in John chapter 3. He is the embodiment of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory amongst us. What does it say in John chapter 1 verse 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the Creator of all things. He is the bread of life, meaning that He is the giver or the source of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door, the entryway to eternal life. He is the good shepherd. He is the leader of God's people. And last week we saw that He is the resurrection and the life. And last week we unpacked the story of Lazarus rising from the dead. And what was kind of the irony in that passage? The irony in John chapter 11 was that the story of Lazarus rising from the dead had nothing really to do with Lazarus himself. Because the heart, the lesson, the point of John chapter 1 verses 1 through 44 was to highlight, was to magnify, was to uh, shine a spotlight on the glory of God seen in verse 4 of chapter 11. And then when we put it all together... That the lesson, the idea of John chapter 11 verses 1 through 44 came down to this, that in trials God is glorified, calling you to a deeper faith, to begin faith, or to stretch your faith. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that through trials, then what is God calling you to do? Is He calling you to deepen your faith, to begin faith, or to stretch your faith in understanding His sovereignty? But today we kind of pick up where we left off last week. And today, in a sense today, this is the last chance. This is the last chance that the Pharisees have to really make up their mind to whether they will submit and to to surrender to Jesus as Lord, as the Christ, as the Son of God, or they will choose to crucify Him. In a sense today, they cross over the threshold. They say, I do, to the idea to kill Jesus. And from this day on, they have one intention in mind. Today is the Pharisees' last chance. And this got me thinking. We uh, love to talk about second chances, but we fail often to talk about last chances. 
How many of you in your life, if you can look back at a time, how many of you have ever experienced a last chance? The last chance you had to speak with a loved one, the last chance you had to share with your adult child, the last chance you had to share the gospel with a neighbor. Right now. Many of us don't realize it with the passage of time, but time itself is a last chance, right? That you cannot get this minute back at 11.14. You can't get these 60 seconds back. This is a last chance to relive this moment. Please don't get up and leave. This is the last chance. Now, some of you, some of you who are uh, married in the room, you had a last chance, right? We've all heard of stories of runaway brides, but why do they run? They run because they realize that that is their last chance to run or not. Some of you who are engaged, don't get to the the, the wedding day to run. Please don't do that, okay, for everybody's sanity. But if you've been married before, then you know that as you enter, as you walk up to the threshold, when you say, I do, it's done. I uh, used to say... You know, being a youth pastor before and being a senior pastor, I've uh, conducted a lot of weddings, and I used to say that I've married a lot of people, and then I would get funny looks. And they went, what do you mean by that? Um, are you a polygamist? Anyways, okay. But what I mean is that I officiated a lot of weddings, and one of the things that I like to do in premarital counseling is to say this, that, that when you say, I do, it's done. Once you say, I do, it's done. That is a last chance that you have, right, before you say, I do. And every once in a while, I'll get that couple that looks up at me like a deer in the headlights. Do you really mean that? Friends, we all live with last chances in mind. Today, I want to talk to you about your last chance. But with the tension of that, I want to weave in the thought that God is working in your life. We often have this uh, tendency in conservative Christian circles just to kind of think that we've been put on the shelf, that God is kind of done using us, done working in our lives. But is God working in your life? The answer is always yes, that God is either working on you to call you to salvation or to call you to sanctification, that whether you feel it or not, whether you think it or not, whether you are excited or bored with life, God is always working. God is always working in our lives despite us. My question for you today is this, what will you do? That the Lord is working in your life. How will you respond? Whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, the Lord God is working in your heart and your mind to bring you closer to Him. And the question is, how will you respond? Because today, on the tail end of the story of Lazarus, we see God and Jesus work in the story that we saw last week and rising Lazarus from the dead. And we saw the lesson that we had last week to Mary, Martha, 
and to the disciples, but the lesson at the end of John 11 is really not given to them. It's given to the Pharisees. It's given to the crowds. It's given to this man, great, the high priest named Caiaphas, and they respond to this miracle, to the working of God, in three different ways. So if you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John in John chapter 11. And that's where we will be. And we will see the three different responses that they have to the miracle of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And I will pick up in the context of verse 43. If you have your Bible, turn in those. It says this, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face wrapped around with a cloth. What does that prove? That Lazarus was truly dead, right? Could you imagine living in a tomb for four days with wrappings around your face just to have a hoax? That proves that it was not. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now notice that next word in verse 45. Therefore... Many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he had done and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now what do some of the crowds, that God, Jesus performs this tremendous miracle, the culmination of Jesus' miracle and ministry. And then the, the crowds are faced with a decision and it says that many of them believe in Jesus. 2,000 years later, you know, I read the story in John 11, and I say, how could they not believe? I mean, because here's this tremendous miracle. Jesus has claimed to be Yahweh. He's claimed in the seven I Am statements. He has performed seven miracles in the Gospel of John to this point, all proving his claims. And, of course, some people would believe, and I find it amazing when people do not when God works in our lives, what is the response that we can have? Is response number one, if you have your notes, is to trust God. It is to trust God. Friends, is God working in your life? The fact that you are here this morning, the fact that you are watching online, the fact that you are unpacking the scripture with me this morning means that he is working in your life. So then a better question for you today is how is God working in your life? What is God calling you to do or to change? Because here in the crowds... What is, what, is, what is the outcome? Is God is asking them to surrender and to believe. The Lord is working in your heart and your mind. What is God calling you to do? Is He calling you to overcome a sinful stronghold in your life? Is He calling you to share the gospel? Is He calling you to serve in the children's ministry here at Calvary Bible Church? Just kidding. What is the Lord calling you to do? You are never put out to pasture. You are never too young to follow and to serve the Lord. How will you respond to His work in your life? When God is working, we have one choice to trust Him more, to follow Him on a deeper faith. But then notice the people that 
do not believe. These people astound me. Because in verse 46, these people were there on that day. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days of being dead. And notice their reaction to this miracle. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. I want you to notice here the contrast, that word but. Now, if you're unpacking the text, if you're trying to understand what the Bible means, one of the most important words that you can look at are the conjunctions. But, for, so, and, yet. Those are all examples. Because they tell you what? They tell you the relationship between phrases and clauses. And if you notice here in verse 46, there is a contrast between those who believe in verse 45 and those that run to the Pharisees. Now to those who are described in verse 46, there is a decision we must make. What's, what's their motivation? Do they have a mere indifference towards Jesus Christ or are they disdainful of Jesus Christ? I believe it's the latter. I believe that the people that are described in verse 46 not only see the miracle, but they are so indoctrinated against Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, that they go and tell the Pharisees, essentially, to crucify him. I find it amazing that somebody could be there that day in the little village of Bethany to see Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days. I find it amazing that they would find a way to accuse Jesus of not being the Son of God and the Christ. But herein lies human nature. What does it say in the Garden of Eden? In the day you eat of it, eat of it you will be like God. That until we truly surrender to God, we will find, even as Christians, we will find reasons not to follow the Lord. Perhaps you're here this morning, if you never surrendered to your life to the Lord, and maybe God has been tugging on your heart and your mind to just trust Him and to take that step of faith, but you have been resisting. Well, if you resist, that's part of human nature. That's part of the curse of man. But the gospel is free of charge. It's presented to you. That if you would believe in Him. But, hey, even Christians, we fall underneath, the, underneath these people that as the Lord is working, at times we reject Him. But I want you to notice why the Pharisees reject Jesus. So we see in verse 46, these disdainful people reject Jesus and the miracle. But then notice why the Pharisees reject Christ. Verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let, go, let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So these people see this great miracle, then what do they do? They go to the Pharisees with their hate and disdain, and then... How do the Pharisees react? Number one, they convene a council, and then number two, they exercise fear. But let's kind of talk about the Pharisees. I kind of revisited them in John chapter 3. I unpacked an extensive treatise on who the Pharisees are, and I would kind of just like to paint the picture of who they are for us this morning. Who are the Pharisees? What is their origin and problem and purpose? I think uh, we, most of us who have been in church know about the Pharisees, but we really don't know the Pharisees. Our knowledge of the Pharisees mimics a 15-year-old driver. We know just enough to be dangerous. Uh, 
what do we know about the Pharisees? We know that Jesus despised them. That they are the only group of people throughout all four Gospels that Jesus publicly criticized. What does he call them? He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, alive on the outside and dead on the inside. We know from the scriptures that the Pharisees are entangled. They're trapped. They're caught in the snares of legalism, of making up additional rules to make themselves feel self-righteous. And what do they do in response? They stand on street corners. They pray out loud, heaping heavy loads on men's shoulders to make them feel that they are not good enough. And what's their problem? The Pharisees are trying to force the nation of Israel into being pious, into submitting to their kind of religion by external means rather than by internal transformation. And what is the purpose of the Pharisees? They are trying to force religion onto the people. Why? It's revealed in verse 48. The Pharisees are completely terrified of reliving the Babylonian captivity and deportation. They believe that if they can force the nation of Israel to abide by God's law in addition to all of the laws that they made up, if they can force the nation of Israel to live out God's law, then God will never cause them to be taken away again. That's their fear. That is what their motivation is And notice it on full display. What are they really afraid of? Are they afraid of God or are they afraid of Rome? Notice verse 42. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council. They got all together. And were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Pharisees will, or excuse me, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they afraid of? They're afraid, more afraid of Rome than they are of God. They never take a moment to just say, is this guy the Son of God, the Christ, the man that we have been looking for? Instead, they are ensnared by their fear of Rome. They are so terrified that if they do not kill Jesus, if they do not get rid of Him completely, that Rome will come in and wipe them off the face of the earth. Notice what they say again, if we let Him go on like this, all men will believe in Him And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They have seen the work of God for three years. They have seen Him before seven miracles. They've seen the discourse. They've seen all these things that prove that Jesus is the Christ. And what are they afraid of? They are more afraid of Rome than they are of God. So then they reject the Son of God, and crucify Him in a mere days. If you reject God in your life, if you reject the truth that the Lord is asking you, calling you to do something in your life, what, are one, what is one reason why you reject Him on a continual basis? One of them is selfishness, but also I believe one of them is here that we often are more afraid of Rome than we are of God. That's what the Pharisees are afraid of. They don't stop for one second to even say, wait, 
Is this guy named Jesus, is he truly who, we, who we, he says he is? But instead they are terrified of the earthly consequences if they do not kill him. What are they afraid of? They are more fearful of Rome than they are of God. But what's the irony here? Because that they reject Jesus as the Messiah, what then happens in, a, in about 35 years from now? In 70 AD, what happens? If you know the history of the nation of Israel, the Roman emperor at the time gets tired of all the rebellion in the nation of Israel, and he comes in anyways, and he destroys Herod's temple, leveling it, and he deports the nation of Israel as a diaspora across all of the Roman Empire. And from 70 A.D. to about 1946, the nation of Israel is without a land, without a nation itself. The consequences of them fearing Rome and not God really lead to their own demise. But the root of their rejection is fear. Perhaps this is one reason why you or we do not follow God to the fullest. Fear cripples faith. Fear cripples faith. If you're sitting here this morning and the Lord has asked you to do something, the Lord is working in your life and in your heart, I would imagine there is a level of fear that is, accompanies it. You know, what if, Lord, I go to seminary across in Dallas, Texas? What if I, what if I, what if I, or what if I quit my job? Or what if I share the gospel with my cold, uh, re, cold, child that doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. The fact that you are here today tells me something very profound. It tells me that God is working in your life. How is he working in your life? What is he asking you to do? Pick an area that the Lord is calling you to obedience. And will you be more afraid of Rome or of God? Because fear will cripple your faith, will cripple your obedience Let us not be afraid of Rome and the consequences that happen from following the Lord, but rather let us fear God, not man. But then notice the choice that they make in verse 53. So from that day on, they plan to together to kill Jesus, to kill him, that this is the moment, this is kind of their last chance. And I know that there are chances here now that they can still repent. I know that theologically. But this is the moment in time where they decide to reject Jesus, that he cannot possibly be the Son of God, the Christ, and they decide to kill him because they are more afraid of Rome than they are of God. But then notice... The third response to the work of God. Notice a man named Caiaphas. He is uh, very fickle. He is very confused and is kind of hard to decipher what is really crippling him from truly following God. Notice verse 49 as Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that, he, that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people that the whole nation perish. Pause. What is Caiaphas saying? That it's better to kill Jesus. That it's better to kill Jesus than the whole nation to perish. What's the irony there? It is better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to perish. 
Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ has died on the cross so that if we believe in Him, that we will not perish from the cost of our sin. Amen? That there is a sense of irony here that Caiaphas pronounces truth, but is clueless to see it. He misapplies the truth. Notice verse 51 as he continues. Now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas says that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Irony number one. And irony number two, Caiaphas prophesies the truth. Verse 51, Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus would die. Number two, that Jesus would die for the nation. And number three, that Jesus' death would bring together the Children of God scattered throughout the world. All of that is true. What's the problem with Caiaphas? He doesn't see it. He doesn't see... He knows the truth, but he misapplies the truth. Caiaphas prophesies truth. In a sense, God does speak through a heathen, a non-believer named Caiaphas. And it got me thinking about stories in the Bible. Does God use non-believers to at times speak his truth? Think about the story of Balaam, right? That he prophesies a blessing to the nation of Israel. But also there's something called Balaam's donkey that speaks truth to Balaam, that there is an angel on the path. That God can use a non-believer, a heathen, to prophesy the truth. But Caiaphas here is completely wrong. He knows the truth, but he misapplies the truth. Caiaphas sees God working, but instead of seeing God working through Jesus, he sees God working despite Jesus. Can I just say it this way? Misapplying the truth is a... uh, disease in Christian world. Just because we know the truth doesn't mean we really do the truth. Friends, we must be careful that when we are convinced that we are right, that if we are more concerned with being right or calling someone out than we are for loving people, then we are misapplying the truth. Think about Matthew chapter 4. Even the devil himself used the scripture to tempt Jesus. What is he doing? He's taking it out of context, but he's also misapplying the truth of God's word. That is exactly what Caiaphas is doing here. He prophesies. He knows the truth, but he misapplies it. Friends, we must be careful that when we think we are right, that if we are not motivated by a love for God and a love for others, that we are doomed to misapply the truth itself. And we are more consumed for being right than we are for loving God and others, than we are headed for disaster. What does it say in the Scriptures? Speak the truth in love. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? It says this, If I speak with the tongues of men... And of angels, and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give up all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The application of truth should not be a club to win an argument. I saw that in seminary. It's exhausting to be that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the truth of the Bible is not meant to be a club, but is meant to be motivated not by being right, but by speaking the truth in love, by showing we should always be motivated by an attitude of love when we speak the truth of God's Word. That is the application. Perhaps this is the greatest difficulty in the Christian life to decipher between our motivation of being right and our motivation of loving God and loving others. Because here is Caiaphas. I find it amazing that this heathen, that this non-believer, that this man has prophesied the truth. He knows the truth. He speaks the truth. But he is clueless to figure out the application of that truth in his context. Let us not be Caiaphas, who we know the truth, but we apply it wrong. And we use it to actually go against God. When God is working in your life, there are three responses that you can make. Two of them are obvious, and then the third one was not so much. The two responses you can have, response number one is to trust God. To see the work of the Lord as the crowds did and to trust Him more. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you see the work of God, that perhaps God is calling you to a deeper faith, to stretch your faith. Or if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then maybe God is calling you to begin your faith, to follow Him in obedience, to surrender your life to Him. So there are three responses when God is working in your life. Number one is to trust Him Number two is to reject him. And number three is to misapply the truth. To think that you are right, but in the end you cause more damage to your relationships than you originally thought. And notice the conclusion of the story in verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. The lesson at the end of John 11 was not given to his disciples, was not given to Mary and Martha, but to the crowds and to the Pharisees. The work of God is clearly seen in John 11, seen in raising Lazarus from the dead. Leaving them with a choice that they could trust God more. They could reject him altogether or they could misapply the truth. And that is the choice that you face today. God is working in your life. Either to grow you in sanctification or to call you for salvation. God is working in your life whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. The Lord is shaping and molding your life through circumstance and through the truth of your, His Word. And there will come a point in time, maybe that time is today, that you have to make a choice. 
That will I trust the Lord more? Will I follow Him in faith? Even if the consequences of Rome might be severe. Even if it changes my relationship with my family, or my church, or my pastor, or whether it changes my financial situation. Will you trust Him, or will you reject out of fear of the consequences of men and not of God? Or are you, will you misapply the truth that He gives to you in His Word? God is working in your life. My question for you is how will you respond? Will you trust Him? Will you recognize the miracle of God and His work? You know, can I just... That is perhaps one of the most difficult parts of living the Christian life, is that we fail to even see Lazarus rising from the dead. We fail to see how God is working in our life. And that no wonder why so many of us just kind of put our Christian life on cruise control. It's because we fail to look around and see the miracle and the work of the Lord. Friends, look around you. Look at the blessings that God has given you. Look at how the Lord has shaped your life. I would imagine you can look back over the last, even the last year and see how God has worked. But oftentimes when we're in the moment, when we're living this life, we fail to see where God is even working. But let us just pause and just say, okay, Lord, where are you working in my life? What are you calling me to do? What are you asking me to give up? What are you asking me to overcome? What sin in my life are you asking me to get rid of? What person in my life are you asking me to share with? What, what truth are you asking me to replace the lies in my life with? The Lord is working. Will you trust Him? Or will you let fear cripple your faith? Will you be too afraid to change out of fear of Rome than of God? Or will you misapply the truth? If you're tuning in online, if you've been here this morning, then I know, obviously, that you come to Calvary Bible Church, that you've at least been here once. I hope to see you return next week. But we here at Calvary... You know, we, we preach the truth, we know the truth, we teach the truth. Truth is in our DNA. But as I was, you know, as I was just kind of unpacking this text, I just thought about all the moments in my life that I have been Caiaphas. That I know the truth, but I completely miss the application of that truth in my life. Friends, let us not be Caiaphas. Let us not just know the truth, proclaim the truth, but let us live it appropriately, motivated not by being right, but by loving God and loving others. And if a brother or sister in Christ needs to be reprimanded, okay, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying speak the truth in love, not with a club. That didn't quite rhyme, okay? Let us not be like that. The Lord is working in your life. What is your response to Him? Will you trust Him more? Will you reject Him? Or will you misunderstand the direction He has for you? Very quickly, I share this every week. It's a conviction of mine that I preach the gospel, share the gospel every Sunday morning. 
Because I did not want one person to ever come to Calvary Bible Church and walk out never hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in that changes our life forever, that the gospel is redemption of our soul and of our life. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, he presents to you eternal life by faith, that if you would believe and surrender your life to him, that he would give you eternal life. But what have we seen so far in the Gospel of John? That salvation, that when we believe, it is so much more than just uh, fire insurance getting us out of hell and into heaven. But it changes our life here and now, that now we are no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, do so. This morning I was um, I was praying with my elders here at Calvary at 8:45, and I and I prayed this morning that there would be one person, at least one person here today, that has never believed in Jesus Christ. I believe that that one person is in here, or at least tuning in online. That you have never just at, if you could stretch out your life. You know, on a timeline, no matter how old it is, whether it's two years old, well, no, you're not in here, but moving on, you wouldn't understand anyways. But whether it's two years old or 80 years old, if you've never, if you can stretch out your life, if you have never surrendered to the Lord, then do so. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But I'm going to encourage you something else as well. Take the next step. If you have never, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, whether here today or past, and if you have never been baptized in believer's baptism to, to confirm to the world that you are a follower of his, I would encourage you to speak with the two people that are going to be up front this morning. If you have questions about the gospel, if you would like to pray with somebody, if you would like to uh, ask more questions about the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they will be here up front uh, to receive you. How is the Lord working in your life? What is he calling and asking you to do? Whether it's uncomfortable or not, whether fear couples with that thought or not, what is he asking you to do? And what will you do? Will you trust him or will you turn aside? Bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, uh, for the story of John 11. Um, Lord, we see these three people and their different reactions to the story of Lazarus. And Lord, uh, we, so much in life, we get so busy, we get so distracted, we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get stressed, we get anxious, we get all distracted away from the Christian life that you have called us to live. And Lord, for just a moment in time, that we would just examine our spiritual walk, we would examine our relationship with you, and we would just ask you, Lord, what are you asking me to do? Lord, give us the boldness to follow and to be obedient to your Son. Lord, I thank you for this church. Uh, it's just an honor and a privilege and great to be with my church family. I've come, I came here three and a half years ago to be with them and to preach the Word of God. And it has not disappointed in three and a half years. I thank you for my family and all the people that you've brought into this fold. I pray that, that we would boldly serve you, follow you, and grow in our relationship with you. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name.